What I understood was that she was going to talk to you tonight about compassion beyond fatigue. And so when I thought about that, it occurred to me that that could mean two different things. It could mean what it's like when we overcome compassion and are overcome fatigue and experience compassion, or it could be focusing on the actual aspect of what, what is commonly referred to today as compassion fatigue. So I thought it might be interesting to look at it from both of those perspectives because they're both useful and they affect us in a very immediate and direct way. So to begin, I think it's useful to have some sort of a working definition of what I at least am referring to when I talk about compassion. And then I welcome and invite if you have anything that you would like to add to that, because when we get a, a broader container with ideas about compassion, we have a deeper appreciation for what it actually is. Because what I might think of as compassion, you might also think of, but you might think of it in a different way, and you might have a different spin on it as well. And that's been one of the real advantages of being in the program at Stanford, because as a long-time meditator and as, even as a monk, when I practiced compassion, when I did a, a karuna practice, it was always by my, myself. I sat and I closed my eyes and I thought compassionate thoughts and wished compassionate wishes. And I thought I had a, an understanding of compassion, and I did. I'm not diminishing that. But uh, when I actually entered the program at Stanford and people started sharing their ideas, the whole field opened up much more. And I come to a much deeper appreciation and understanding of what compassion might be like. So when I'm talking about compassion, I'm talking about a heart quality. And it's not so much known in the mind as recognized with awareness, but it is a heart quality. And it's that quality that can bear witness to suffering within one's self or bear witness to the suffering of another with the wish to either alleviate or in some way mitigate that suffering. So compassion is a heart quality that's known in awareness that can bear witness to suffering with the wish to alleviate or mitigate that suffering. Altruism is the movement to act on that compassionate wish to relieve the suffering that one sees around them. So those, that would be the, the way that I would be using compassion and defining compassion. But it could be any, it could be much, much more than that. That's a very classic way to think about compassion. So Having said that, does, does anybody have another angle or another spin that they'd, they'd like to share? Yes. 
So being aware of suffering from the angle and perspective of cause and moving past that. Okay, would would it be fair to say that to to be looking at the causes and being able to be right there with them without needing to change anything? Good, thank you. So that's an important distinction. Thank you for, for sharing that. What compassion does is it allows us to meet our experience in its reality, in the totality of the experience with the full constellation of peripheral things that come packaged with any particular triggering event. So we see a child that's fallen and injured themselves and we have a compassionate response. And with that triggering event comes a whole constellation of other associated thoughts and emotions and attitudes and so on and so forth. And sometimes those can be difficult to be with and at other times they can be, you know, very uh, easy to be with. But in any event, what compassion does is it allows us to experience the entire spectrum of whatever it is that we're experiencing without needing to change anything. So for practitioners, for meditators, this is a really useful thing to begin to practice with and embody in our own experience or in our own life because many of us struggle with our meditations. We sit down and we're given instructions and uh, we uh, have all these wonderful methods that were given as teachings, and but we find that the mind won't cooperate. So we're told, focus on the breath. My teacher used to say, just here, don't do anything else, just focus here. I said, yes, Bhante. So I would focus on the breath, boom, the mind would slip, boom, the mind would slip. You know, years later, the mind is still slipping and it's like, okay, this is this is not a lot of fun, you know. So so, you know, when the meditator can begin to see what's actually happening in their experience and not meet it with expectations or resistance, then. Compassion is the way that this happens. Mindfulness sees what's happening, but compassion allows it. So compassion allows the causes. In this case, minds think. That's all there is to it. Minds think. And to think that they're not going to think just because you wish them not to think is, you know, it's not so productive. So you can be kind. You can learn to be kind to, to yourself in your meditation practice. You had something you wanted to say too. It's also a form of freedom. A form of freedom. Yes, beautiful. Did everyone hear that? He he said that it's a, a form of freedom and it gives him tremendous latitude not to get caught up in whatever it is that he's bearing witness to that's giving rise to compassion. So compassion does have this 
expansiveness, this spaciousness that allows us to hold everything and be flexible, that allows us to meet the causes and see them and be completely flexible. You see, so let's go back to the example of meditation. So it's not unnatural or unusual that I would want my mind to settle on the object and be absolutely precise and excellent student for my teacher. I really love my teacher. He has given me so much. I want to do well for him, and I want to do well for myself. But if this isn't what my experience is, and I keep pushing against my experience, denying my experience, being inflexible with my experience, and not seeing what's actually going on, you see, then I'm sort of cut off from this avenue of compassion that allows me to be in relationship to experience with flexibility and spaciousness. And also, when I cut myself off from compassion, I also diminish my capacity to be mindful because in that desire to perform for my teacher, without recognizing that there's a desire to perform, I'm not recognizing the presence of greed. And therefore, I'm not recognizing the obscuration to my actual meditation because I'm trying to do something and I'm resisting the truth of what I'm actually experiencing. I'm just giving you this as an example. I, 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 that never happens to me, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Yes, in the back. I would map that to the practice of metta, loving kindness practice, the Brahma Vihara practice. So when I talk about a heart quality, it's metta is quality of friendliness that's known the heart generally, what we think of as heart. And in Asia, mind and heart are the same thing. We, we think of the mind here and the heart here over there, but I think that's what I would map it to. Other people might give you a different answer, but I would definitely say that in the teachings there, the teachings of the Brahma Vihara are that to cultivate the heart in that way. And also, it's interesting that you would bring this up because the cultivation of the heart is taught as a protective meditation. So uh, Shaila has the same teacher, or one of the same teachers that I have, and when he teaches metta, he doesn't teach it until a very advanced stage of meditation when the meditator might be entering a, a, a kind of realm where or experience where things begin to dissolve uh, or deconstruct. And so he teaches the metta as a form of, of protective meditation. So one can sort of take refuge in the heart, take refuge in loving kindness. So thank you. Thank you all for sharing. So that's a little bit of how we might begin to think of compassion there are ways that we automatically 
recognize compassion when yesterday when the the news came of the bombings in Boston, my heart was sick just along with so many other people. They hear this news and it's just unthinkable that people would do that to other people. And there's a compassionate response that can arise in situations like that. Or if we're sitting by the bedside of a loved one who's sick and terminally ill, compassion will sometimes be very, very present. And and that heart quality can be recognized as compassion. Sometimes compassion is known through the wisdom faculty. Sometimes it's through the the mere recognition that you or someone else is suffering that will open the heart. So what happens is that you don't necessarily um, make yourself feel compassionate. It's not, that's almost not authentic compassion, but compassion is the heart's natural response to suffering. So, Again, let's just go back to our meditation since we're all meditators here. Suffering can be seen on, so it's a loaded word, so there's many different ways and levels to look at, at suffering. But let's say we have the, just the suffering of the irritation or the frustration of not being able to be steady and calm in our meditation. We might sit down, we might have had a restless day or an argument with our coworker or something like that, and, and we brought that energy into our meditation with us, and we just can't settle down. But that energy can unsettle us to the, to the point that it, it sort of overwhelms us. It sweeps over us. Uh, and it's like being lost in thought. We get lost in our emotions or our whatever it is that's happening. We're, we're overcome by that. And so when we're able to bring the quality of mindfulness to that overwhelm or to that suffering, to whatever degree we're suffering or that whatever degree, quality of the suffering is, whether it's a little suffering or a big suffering, when we're able to bring mindfulness and recognize what's happening, the mere application of mindfulness in that instance will reveal to us that suffering is present right then, at that very moment. We are, we are suffering, even if it's just, why can't I stay with the breath? You know, what's going on here? that impatience, you know, or being stuck in traffic, a simple example like that, being stuck in traffic and needing to get someplace on time, and that irritation that comes when the light turns red and you're trying to get through the intersection. There's this moment of contention and contraction. Right at that very moment, suffering is present. So I'll give you a little trick, a a, a little practice. I have begun to try to notice in my day-to-day experience, in my daily experience, all the moments that I'm aware of that kind of contention, that kind of contraction, whether it's a little contraction or a big contraction. I'm just trying to become aware of 
that. So I'm applying mindfulness, intentional mindfulness, to, to that quality. And whenever I notice it, I make a resolve, and then I simply drop it. And the resolve is, may I meet this moment of suffering with kindness? That's it. End of story. May I meet this moment of suffering with kindness? And that's it. I don't make a big deal about it. It's not necessary to make a big deal about it. You simply start to cultivate this practice of knowing that that suffering is present. You see, because I almost said it wrong, (laughs) that you're suffering. But that suffering is present because what happens then is the tendency to identify with that suffering, the tendency to oh, I am never going to get to the place where I can ever relax or I'm never going to be able to follow the breath or I'm never going to get through the intersection. You know, why is life so hard for me? Why is this so hard for me? So, you know, life is really impersonal. We just make it personal. We are learning to, by doing a simple practice like this, We're learning to unlearn the habit and the practice of tensing up against our experience, of denying of our our experience, of resisting our experience, of wanting our experience to be other than it actually is. Does this resonate? Does this make sense? So in terms of compassion beyond fatigue, if I were to think about that, I would hold that in somewhat of a manner in which I've just been speaking to you. I would try to recognize what compassion is, what compassion is in my own experience and in my own life. And I encourage you to do the same thing, to begin to be aware of when you're feeling this quality of compassion and be open to the possibility that compassion arises many, many more times in your day-to-day experience than you're being conscious of. So the very first thing that one needs to do if they want to cultivate a habit of compassion is to become mindful. So like everything else in practice, it's built on the backbone of mindfulness. So we bring mindful attention to our experience, but mindfulness recognizes suffering. Compassion actually embraces it and holds it. Do you get the difference? Mindfulness can seem dry and and sort of mental, but compassion is juicy. And, you know, I don't know how to say it in a, in a different way. Yes, yes, and that, and that is altruism. Altruism is the movement to take action to alleviate the suffering of another, recognized through a compassionate response. So they're, they're really hand in glove, they go together. And, you know, there is another way to look at that 
as well. And that is like, you know, this thing that happened in Boston, there isn't a lot that I think I can do immediately to change what happened or to bring comfort to the people who were injured or to their loved ones. But it doesn't diminish the fact that my heart responded and maybe on some level that's helpful. So for me sitting in California thinking about people in Boston, so what I'm saying is that compassion is, can sometimes be felt without there being an avenue in which to actually reach out and help. Yes. Well, you're not alone. <laughs> you're not alone. And this is, this is one of the things that we can try our best to work on when we practice, do metta practice or the Brahma Vihara practices. So, you know, I'm sure that you've all been guided through the different categories for loving kindness and eventually you get to the category of the difficult person or the enemy or the perpetrators of violence and mayhem you know and if you can't feel compassionate towards them if you understand that that's exactly what you're feeling that you're not able to do that, you can meet that with compassion. You see what I'm saying? So let's just go back to our meditation. If we can't follow the instructions, you know, we can meet with compassion the fact that we're trying and that we're just human beings. We're doing the best that we can, you see? And in that way, it's kind of a movement towards action, so there's different ways that it can be expressed. And I don't want to in any way sit up here like I'm an expert on this. You all know how to touch your heart. You all know how to move in a compassionate sort of way towards helping yourself and helping others. We all know how to do this. We just have to be reminded sometimes and we can consciously decide to cultivate the habit of responding with compassion and altruism rather than out of competitive competitiveness and <clears throat> selfishness and isolation and fear you know so it seems like a good quality to cultivate i become a compassion junkie <laughs> So a lot of people find that compassion is most difficult to offer to themselves. They feel that they can give compassion to others pretty easily and it's a little bit harder to receive compassion from others, but it's most difficult to give compassion to themselves. So Leah, who I, Leah's been here before, hasn't she? Yeah, she she teaches um, this the CCT course at the uh, Veterans Administration here in Palo Alto. So she works with a lot of um, uh, veterans that are suffering post-traumatic stress syndrome from fresh from Afghanistan and Iraq and uh, and Vietnam too. In any event, 
what a lot of these people report is that it's difficult. They can feel compassionate for for others and their, you know, their friends and their buddies and so on and so forth, you know, who were hurt or injured or lost in some way. They can feel deep compassion for them, but they have a very difficult time feeling compassion for themselves. So this is something that's not just unique to veterans. It's can happen, it happens in the general population. So the most difficult expression of compassion is towards self. The next most difficult expression of compassion is the, to receive compassion from others. And the easiest way that one can start to cultivate compassion is to offer compassion to someone else. So I don't know if that resonates with any of you, but it certainly did with me. I, I didn't realize how harsh I could be with myself and how uh, ungenerous I could be with myself. And in recognizing that and touching what the, the experience of self-compassion in a real way felt like a, a release when I did that the first time, when I actually had that experience, I felt like something from the top of my head, went through my body and exited the soles of my feet. And even though this situation that triggered this remained, I was in a different kind of relationship with my experience that felt much more spacious, much more forgiving, much more flexible, much kinder. And from that moment on, I once I experienced it, I could feel it within myself and I could more easily tap into being able to be authentically compassionate for other people. So to put myself in another person's shoes became much more available to me, much easier for me. Yes. Deep trust of what is? Yes. Yes. So did you all hear that? Yes? No? So what he said was that he thinks of it as a, he thinks of self-compassion as a form of deep trust, being able to trust his experience and being able to trust being with your experience in a, in a deep and authentic kind of way. So another quality of self-compassion in this case would be that experience of shared humanity. So I can understand what you're saying by trust because that's not unique to you or to me. That's below our story of what we're trusting or trusting in. This quality of trust, this awareness of trust, you see. So um, compassion fatigue. What do we think compassion fatigue is? Okay. So being overwhelmed and feeling like you're being carried away by the suffering that you're confronting. So compassion fatigue is generally applied to people who are in caregiving roles. And compassion fatigue are normal symptoms of stress in, the, in that type of situation. There are normal symptoms of stress in other situations which would not be called compassion fatigue. 
But in this case, it's normal symptoms of stress in response to being in this role of a caregiver, in a caregiving role. And we did a course at the Zen Hospice Project where I have worked for some time. And we have a list here. And I'll just read some of these things and see if these resonate to, uh, for any of you. So compassion fatigue symptoms are normal displays of stress resulting from the caregiving work that you perform on a regular basis. And so when we did this, it was to present to a group of caregivers and medical people. But this can apply to a general, to a general audience because in, at some point in our life, we've all been care, caregivers, even if we're just caring for ourselves. While the symptoms, symptoms are often disruptive, depressive, and irritating, an awareness of the symptoms and their negative effect on you can lead to a positive change, personal transformation, and a new resiliency. So some of these normal symptoms, as they would appear in an individual, are as follows. There's quite a list of them here, so I, w I won't go through all of them, but it could be something like excessive blaming, where projecting onto another all the frustrations and anger that we are feeling within ourselves. So excessive blaming, difficulty concentrating, uh, preoccupied minds, excessively complaining, substance abuse to mask our feelings, compulsive behavior such as overspending or overeating or gambling or reckless, you know, driving or whatever, poor self-care, um, not taking care of ourselves, uh, our hygiene, you know, just being sort of untidy in that way which is also very symptomatic of people with depression. Legal problems, going into debt, recurring nightmares, flashbacks to traumatic events, chronic physical ailments such as gastrointestinal problems, apathy, sadness, no longer finding activities pleasurable, bottling up our emotions, isolation from others, uh, mental and physical exhaustion, denying our problems, and the list goes on and on. And these symptoms can also appear in organizations, and there are organizational symptoms for compassion fatigue. I'll go through some of these because I don't know if any of you work in these kinds of environments, but they're interesting. One of the symptoms is negativism towards management the inability of staff to believe improvement is possible, high absenteeism, inability for, <laughs> I left my glasses at, at home, inability for teams to work well together, desire among staff members to break company rules, outbursts of aggressive behaviors among the staff, the inability of staff to complete assignments and tasks, the inability of staff to respect and meet de deadlines, reluctance towards change, lack of vision for the future, lack of, lack of flexibility, constant changes in coworker in coworkers' relationships, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, compassion fatigue are those qualities of contraction 
that we were talking about earlier that just manifest in specific ways. And generally, they manifest in dysfunctional ways that cause us to be to feel overwhelmed or to feel burned out like we were discussing before the talk. So compassion fatigue is often that feeling of burnout. Does this resonate? Does this make sense for you? Empathy is that ability to feel the pain or the emotions or to feel with another. And it resonates actually in a different part of the brain. So my ex-wife had a knee injury and had to have an operation. And (laughs) I actually experienced the pain that she was feeling, or I thought I was experiencing the pain that she was feeling. So that was an empathetic response. And the difference between empathy and compassion is that with empathy, one can be pulled over the edge into the painful experience. With compassion, one can see the cause and hold it. It doesn't need to change anything. So when we're sitting with someone who is ill and dying, we know in a way that there's a part of us that knows with awareness that death is approaching and that there's there's no escape. But we can sit there and not be frightened away by it. So we can sit in the middle of the heat. And that's why a compassionate companion is so useful to someone who's either dying or injured or sick or suffering in some way. That's why being able to to be with someone in the way that you were talking about is so helpful. So in order not to fall into the trap of compassion fatigue, we have to be able to begin to cultivate qualities of compassion in response to our day-to-day experience. We have to actually begin to become aware of how compassion arises in our life and begin to take advantage of that awareness so that we can cultivate a new habit to respond from the heart in a wholesome way rather than out of fear and separateness. Would it be fair to say that you're, as well as building capacity, that you are building awareness, awareness of the arising of compassion? Actually, what you're saying is a, is, it's a kind of validation to what I was pointing to, and that is that through practice, we become much more aware of qualities like compassion or qualities like metta, qualities like you know, feeling happiness for others, which is referred to as sympathetic joy or mudita. It's through practice that we become aware of these things and that we replace this kind of a response with a response that's objectified. So we don't look for our happiness outside of ourselves as much any longer. We don't look for satisfaction outside of ourselves. We can find these qualities within ourselves. And so 
we're actually much more present with other people in a real way because we're not overlaying that exchange with our own wishes for things to be a certain way or for them to be a certain way. They can be who they are. It allows us to be who we are as well. Compassion is always there and we, yes, that's exactly right. That's what I, th- that's what I think is, with, is true with concentration as well. The ability to concentrate, concentration is there, but we have to somehow create the conditions or get through the obscurations that allow concentration to arise. And one of the ways to do that, in my own meditation experience, is to allow compassion to come into the equation. That was the thing that was missing for years in my own meditation. I didn't allow self-compassion to come in. You know, I was just kind of a macho meditator. Just go for it. Get an object and just go for it. That type of thing. That's useful to a certain degree, but after a while it doesn't hold it. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, thank you. And that's true also within a group. You especially if the group is together for a while doing something, you know, there's a, there's a kind of trust that, that begins to develop that the process will unfold in the right way or in a, in a skillful, beneficial way if we just trust in the, trust in the group, the wisdom that's in, in the group itself. Yes? Feeling, feeling? Feeling that. Yes. So that's difficult because when we're overwhelmed in that way, whether it's with empathy or anger or desire or whatever, whatever we're overwhelmed with, once we're caught in the overwhelm, sometimes in my experience, it's just had to play itself out. I knew that eventually it would play itself out. So what I personally have tried to do is to cultivate an awareness, a mindful awareness of what is beginning to arise, what's starting to arise so that I can, sometimes I can catch it before I go over the edge. Not all the time, but sometimes I can. And when I can't and I realize I'm just stuck and this has got to play out, I can be honest with that that I'm overwhelmed, that's the cause of my suffering, I'm overwhelmed, I can be honest with that and hold it with compassion. See, mindfulness, in my experience, in that situation, only recognizes that I've gone over the cliff. It doesn't help me with it necessarily. But if mindfulness can recognize where I'm going, sometimes that's enough to give me enough space or to give anyone enough space to have a choice. So it's kind of like, you know, you're sort of in a grumpy mood and you get together with your husband or wife or partner or somebody and, you, you know, you're just kind of itching for an argument. You know, you can sort of feel, feel it, that irritability, you see. So, oh, there it is again. Yeah, I don't have to go there. That type of thing. But... Overwhelm is difficult, and when you're just flooded with empathic 
feelings. Another way that I look at it is here's another chance to know what it's like to be overwhelmed. You just are, just be simple with your experience. We make such a big deal out of it. So you're a great crowd. You ask lots of questions. <laughs> Sometimes people don't ask that many questions. Okay, there's one last question because we're right at nine o'clock, but you've been waiting, so go ahead. One could have the in- intention or one can just see that having judgment and wanting not to have judgment is a point of suffering. And in the recognition of that suffering in that very moment, in that very place, the heart can open with a compassionate response. And that's knowing compassion through the wisdom faculty rather than the heart faculty in a way. So people are different. Some people are much more heart-driven, devotional, and other people are, I tend to be a little bit more heady. And so when I got it the first time, that's how I got it. I got it through sort of understanding what was happening and being in the presence of it that way. So as a compassionate act, (laughs) I'm going to bow to each one of you and thank you for Uh, your kind attention and for your questions and input. And uh, I also want to say that when people come together and practice together and meditate together and listen to the Dhamma and talk about the Dhamma, a field of merit is created. And in this field, we each individually benefit, but also everyone that we know and touch benefits. And by extension, this field of merit can spread out to beings everywhere. So may all beings everywhere be happy and free from suffering, and may all beings everywhere know what it's like to be loved and to give love and to receive love. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.